0: Hello and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. I'm going to talk to a man who I'm going to call Alex A. Alex A. is a very, very smart man who has to remain essentially anonymous other than a first name and a last initial I want to situate this interview here as an interview that basically happens in a time of tremendous social and cultural change in this country. Uh, And I think a lot of people, myself and this man, Alex A included, are looking around at the world in which we live and just taking stock. And this man, Alex A., is very uh, intelligent, as you're going to hear. And he has a very... I use the word peculiar, not in a bad way or derogatory way, but I guess specific would be a better example, a very very specific lens of history in which he's aggressively down the middle, I would say. He aggressively tries to to look at the world down the middle beam. And I suppose, you know, there's nothing wrong with that as such. And he situates history from 1776 almost to the present day and we're going to have an hour and a half long conversation, uh, give or take. But I wanted to talk for a second because I think it struck me as we were having the conversation. It struck me that you can't really ignore the fact that this conversation was able to happen at all because we live in this a time of tremendous information, which essentially is widely available, as long as you um, know where and how to look. Um, one need only e- examine the fact that I was able to do COVID episodes by simply knowing where and how to look. Um, but anyway... So here he is, and he's a widely read person who has an interesting take on the history of this country. And you'll, you'll be able to hear uh, pretty pretty much instantaneously that he is actually an immigrant. And one of the things I love doing on my show is talking to immigrants because I think immigrants are able to contextualize and able to objectify Uh, the country in ways that maybe native-born people could not. Um, Because, you know, obviously immigrants have lived other places. And I think also... The other thing you hear is somebody who is grateful to live in this country, but also somebody who is deeply concerned about the country, because, I mean... As you'll hear, he has a a very young child and he's concerned about this young child. And he's also, he grew up in the former Yugoslavia. And he also touches briefly on uh, what it was like to grow up in the former Yugoslavia. But also, I think he's able to look back on that as an adult and wonder, you know, if things had gone. ...slightly different... Uh, ...would I be here? I think not... ...and he's able to see as an adult... How, ...how easily that could have been... ...very, very scary indeed... ...as war is... ...I mean... ...war is very scary... ...even if you're... ...living through it... ...with the rosy glasses of a small child... ...um... As I sit here and talk to you now, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, so many people are learning about our society, maybe not for the first time, but certainly with brand new eyes in the year 2021 and presumably also in the year 2022. I mean... I'm an adult and I'm assuming you're an adult, so I think we can all sit here and and talk about and reflect on the fact that while 2022 will be different than 2021 and 2020, I certainly don't expect and I don't think anybody really expects it to be this, you know, the happy ending, so to say, of, of COVID. I think now it's become obvious to me that this is going to draw out, you know, possibly for years. And I think also the changes are going to take hold in in new and different ways. I also think that, uh, you know, I'm recording this intro here a couple of days after Christmas. Um... Four days after Christmas, exactly. And the thing that strikes me now, now that we have Omicron mixing with the holiday season, is there's going to be a spike. There's going to be, maybe not government-enforced closures in this country, but there will be businesses that decide for the health and safety of their employees to to work from home and to continue that. And also, you're going to have businesses that open up and and either for business reasons or for whatever, they just decide to open up and so people are going to be coming uh, in contact with each other and I think this is going to continue and I think you're going to see uh, more of the same, but a continuation. So you have more of the same and therefore the, the sameness is the change, right? I think it's going to become more and more obvious to folks uh, that we are not going to go back to any. anything in the zip code of what normal is. And so with that in mind, I'm going to present to you a conversation with a man I'm going to call Alex A. And Alex A is very much, uh, first of all, he's an immigrant to this country, and, and second of all, he's very intelligent. And third of all, I can tell almost within the first couple of minutes that he's given this a great deal of thought. And Not just because he's coming on my show, but because he's a thoughtful person. And I thought, you know, it's very important for me to have somebody who might not be a trained historian, but who has very considered takes on history uh, to come on this podcast, as much for the oral history piece of it as for anything else. And so that's why I'm basically releasing this into the universe but uh, anyway I've got other podcasts upcoming and I've got a really cool one uh, that I haven't recorded yet I'm sure it'll be pretty neat um, but anyway uh, thanks a lot everybody and I'm having a great day and I hope you are too alright I'll talk to you later
1: this call is now being recorded Hello, everybody. This is Ben Kitchings, the History Voyager, and I thought we would have an interesting conversation with a man I'm going to call Alex about, well, it's about growing up in Europe, and um, maybe we can get into some of his career in the U.S. and things like that. But, Alex, why don't you get us kicked off?
2: Hey, how's it going, Ben? Oh, well... I would like to start maybe like through the history as well, since your podcast name is named the History Voyage, so we can maybe take us from history, Voyage, or we can start from present day. You can ask me whatever interests you the most. Okay.
1: Okay, so um, why don't you um,
2: tell us a little bit about
1: where exactly are you from exactly?
2: Well, I'm from former Yugoslavia, and I have family all over Europe, America, Australia, (laughs) friends all over as well, mixed origin in my family, so I'm exposed to multiple points of view and different cultures as well, so...
1: Well, okay, so Yugoslavia was pretty much a multicultural place at one point, wasn't it?
2: Oh, yeah, even still today, it's still multicultural, but it's like seven different countries or six different countries right now. Yeah, yeah. All right,
1: so why don't you tell us um, some of your earliest memories from childhood,
2: first off? I was born in the 80s, so I grew up in... What was called socialism as communist country, but was more social than communist. So uh, the things I remember is just normal childhood, childhood, no worries, everything was good until communism collapsed and then everything took the deep dive into the yeah. war. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now the war. The Civil War started in the 90s, in the early 90s.
2: Yeah, early 90s, pretty much after the communism collapsed. You had all like, the U.S. as a major power, so they were dictating all the main policies and the main points of view. So since you just mm-hmm. filed with the communist country, it had to be broken up because building new, new uh, policies dictated.
1: Okay. And
2: um do you actually remember um
1: like did the war did the war come close to you at all or do you remember it or
2: what do you I you was, a, of, what, I was what, a little what? bit on a mix too, like I said I had like a family for from different cultures and religions so it was since it was a civil war they had like everybody fighting everybody, so I was exposed to different views and why the war started and stuff like that. All right. But personally, I I wasn't involved in any kind of major conflict, but looking back now, I was in some kind of danger, but back then I didn't think it was any of the danger, the war that it presented. Yeah, so what did it feel like? What year war meant no school, so we were just playing outside and enjoying our life as a kid. Yeah. So you you might have even gone so far as to say you liked it because there was no school, huh? Yeah. You can say that. Yeah. yeah. From from kids' point of view, but looking back now, it it was definitely dangerous. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, what do you mean, looking back now? Like, like, what do you what do you mean?
2: Well, looking back now, like all stuff that could happen, like right now, the build you. I have a kid as well, so you think in terms of what could happen to your kid. So, mm-hmm. everything happened yeah. to your kid, but from their perspective, so many things could have happened.
1: Right, right. So, um, so you wanted to
2: talk about the history of Yugoslavia. Well, pretty much we have like today's world, in my opinion. We have a like current situation with social economic problems, and then it all backs forth to something in the past, so for people to better understand today, they have to go back to the history to see what was going on, to understand reality, so, we can talk about it today, what's going on, but then we need to go back and explain, to, so you can understand what's going on today. <laughs> Alright, so why don't you um, start us off with what...
1: Like what's going on as far as the history goes?
2: <laughs> well, I would like to start since you were from the United States, you can start, uh, in U.S. independence back like 300 years, 1776. Okay. Like, uh, even back then we had a uh, conflict between uh, Americans and the British and Americans wanted to create their own nation to, to further their interests but they have uh, French help and Spanish help as well, but many people don't even know if, uh, Spanish have, like, their uh, military involved as well, helping Americans. Plus, you have Russia with diplomatic help as well. Russia is very liked in the U.S. last 50 years, so... <laughs> I have to bring them as well. Okay. So pretty much the point of view is that back then, U.S. had to separate from British, but today they're like the best friends right now. U.S. and British economies and politics are pretty much the same, so. Yeah. But, but you have like French interests, you have Spanish interests, know, Russian interests, even though it wasn't involved. Military-wise, diplomatically, they were behind supporting U.S. because they didn't like the British. So whatever they can do to help U.S. to minimize the British influence. Okay. So that was yeah. like the first point where we can start so let's, analyze let's, a little bit of history to see what's going on today.
1: Yeah. So let's start with talking about Yugoslavia is essentially. In southeastern Europe.
2: Exactly, yeah.
1: Kind of by the
2: uh,
1: Adriatic Sea,
2: or
1: is it the... the, No, it's not the Baltic.
2: It's Adriatic Sea. but it's Adriatic Sea, yep. Just across Italy.
1: It's kind of across from Greece and
2: Italy and... Yeah, you have all the the countries there. Austria, Hungary used to be up north, and I got Austria and Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, and Italy as well. Yeah, so,
1: uh, so you guys were, or, I guess Yugoslavia was, um, it was conquered by the, let
2: me think, it was conquered by the Ottomans. Yeah, to some degree, right? At on, on one point, yeah. Before that, it was uh, Romans. Before that, it was Celtic people. So, Ottomans came, like let's say, eleven, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred, to the Balkan areas. This okay. probably they have uh, only white Muslims in the world in former Yugoslavia because of that.
1: All right. So okay, so and when did Islam, uh, when did Islam come into, uh, I guess, come into the Yugoslavia or I guess that region?
2: Yeah, it was the Turkish Ottoman Empire that brought it to the region.
1: Okay, but when exactly? Some time around the.
2: Well, let's say you can't really say when because uh Yugoslavia is not a small region, so beginning let's say about 13th century, up to fifteenth century, and all the way up to nineteenth century it was going on ongoing things.
1: Alright. <clears throat> okay. So okay. So would you would it be fair to say that the religion is is the major source of uh the contention there, or is it more
2: complicated? To make it like an example, what you have as a racial tensions here in in the United States, that will be like in Yugoslavia, it will be like more religion-wise. Plus, non-religious, like communists, you have like a hardcore communist as well, so that's almost like another religion there as well. So you have Muslims, you have Christians, which are Catholics and Orthodox, plus Economists yeah. as well.
1: All right, so it seems like like either a melting pot or, or, I guess, a melting pot that's been agitated, I guess would be a way
2: to say it. Yeah, you um, can say that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's also in a crossroads between all these major powers like West Europe, Russia, you got Turkey as well. Not powerful today, but it was back then. Okay. Okay. Everybody wants to control the region, so. Yeah, it's kind of a crossroads there. Pretty,
1: exactly. Pretty much. That's yes, yes. That's kind of a crossroads.
2: So. It's going to have tensions in in Balkans, then in Israel part, then a Kashmir. That's the three points in the world that never going to have a peace concluded. Yeah. There's something going on. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, you
1: had World War One kind of started in the Balkans. You had, you know, lots of things Yeah, sort of kick off there. All
2: right. But uh, what I was going to say about a U.S. independence, when I talked about that a little bit, right after that, we will have a French Revolution, like Years after, Ten years after that, the U.S. got independence, you got French Revolution, which was considered a fundamental principle of Western democracy, and then you got Napoleon coming to power. So, <clears throat> around the time that the U.S. became independent, you had this massive revolution in Europe that brought down all these kings and... Monarchies and there was more democracy involved. So that's when we get to start to see all these democracies what we see today, Western democracies. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years after, you have a Louisiana Purchase, which mm-hmm. was, I was listening one of your podcasts about Louisiana and, uh, reason really why I think that Napoleon, uh, sold that is because of the Napoleonic wars. He needed the money for all the wars he was going to go through for the next 15 years. The same year that he sold it, he started Napoleonic Wars. So, I just wanted to mention that Mm -hmm. you guys mentioned that in a a previous podcast that you have. Yeah. And then the reason I mentioned Uh, U.S. independence when you have the French military, Spanish and Russian diplomatic ties, those three countries have something in common for the United States, and that would be those, the only countries that U.S. bought territory from, which was Louisiana, Florida, and Alaska. You know, the fact. Okay, yeah, that was a
1: lot of land there. Yeah, Louisiana purchase. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it
2: was. So, okay. I just wanted to go over in the history to bring a little bit of what's going on today so we can better understand what's going on today. Right, okay. Okay. So, right after the Louisiana purchase, the U.S. gained this massive uh, territory. But in Europe we have a massive war zone. <laughs> Every time US prospers here economically or by territory, in Europe there's a massive war zone. And that's why you see US is so powerful today because they took advantage of the Europe's rebuilding this just war. So mm. but the, the Napoleonic war they have like a really big consequence on our global history. We well, had created a a lot of nationalism a liberalism, and then Britain, the reason is the world the world's uh, <clears throat> biggest naval and economic power, but then you also have like Spanish decline and Portuguese decline so a lot of stuff was going on right after the Louisiana purchase, and the war lasted about more than ten years. And soon as soon as the Napoleonic Wars ended, then you have a uh, Florida purchase, another game for the United States. And then after that, maybe around 1850, 19th century, we had the uh, Crimean Wars, and you just had a Crimean uh, expansion by Russia a couple of years ago, but... <clears throat> 150 years ago, you have a big wars in Europe as far as uh, Russia on one side, and you had like British and France, which were always fighting now. They were together. Cre- they created alliance with Turkey to fight off the Russians of the uh, Crimea. But like we saw a couple of years ago, Russia went back to Crimea again. And that was one of the biggest preparations for the World War One that we're going to see later on.
1: I remember that. I, I remember when uh, Russia went into Crimea a few years back.
2: Yeah, but we also had like a big Crimean war 150 years ago that people should take a look when they see current when there's something that happened 150 years ago that will explain all these shifts of powers and different interests of French or British or uh, Ottoman Empire at the time. And then the same year that the uh, Crimean war ended, same year Nikola Tesla was born. I'm sure you're familiar with him.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: So Tesla is born in full Yugoslavia, but then later on came into the U.S one of the bigger inventors at the time. Okay. And then two years after that, another guy was born, uh, Michael Pupin. He was one of the founding members of NASA, one of nine founding members. He was also born in former Yugoslavia. He was also a major scientist in the 19th century. He also came to the United States. But in around like eighteen sixties, we have a U.S. Civil War.
1: Yeah, what was going on? What was going on in eighteen sixty in the former Yugoslavia, as far as you know?
2: Eighteen
1: sixteen
2: or eighteen sixty? Eighteen 1860. Oh, you know, at the same time the U.S. had Civil War.
1: Yeah, well the civil war started in eighteen sixty one, but
2: yeah, close enough. Yeah, right. Around that time they were gathering there was massive um rebellion against the uh Ottoman Empire. You have a lot of different movements, old Greeks, Bulgarians, Serbians, they were all doing uprisings. And eventually they would drive a lot of Ottomans out of the south southeast Europe. Okay. But it's interesting that during the U.S. Civil War, I don't know if you knew, but there was a Russian fleet that came to help U.S. during the, uh, uh, Civil War, which they helped the northern side in San Francisco and New York. They brought like six, six warships to help the, to help the naval defend their bases.
1: Mhm. Why do you yeah. think the Russians were
2: involved in the U.S. Civil War? Well, you we have to understand. Uh, before communism, Russia and U.S. were very friendly. Not right after, like communism came. That's where the tensions came and the problems came. But before that, they were just another, like France or where mm-hmm. Russia was another power in their largest largest uh, country in the world that helped help US. But they actually came they actually came to help US during the US independence and also during the Civil War they helped Union port cities. And right after the Civil War, maybe like two years after there was Alaska purchase.
1: Yeah, I remember that. I mean, I don't remember it, but I remember studying about
2: it. Yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, that's why I bring the uh, U.S. independence as a beginner, because you have, like, uh, France, Spain, and Russia, that was the only ones to help the U.S. become independent, and those are the only countries that U.S. actually bought territory from, which was Louisiana, Florida, and Alaska. All other territories are either won by war or some kind of treaty. Right. And then I wanted to bring up the uh, for today's kind of discussion of what's going on in economics and social. What we see today in the U.S. in 1868, we had a 14th Amendment Come up for the Constitution. And the Fourth Amendment was pretty much the uh, amendment for uh, free slaves. Pretty much says no personal rights can be infringed without due process of law, make sure they don't get discriminated. But almost immediately, they were used for businesses and corporation and gradually became like personal under the law. So Right about 1870 we see business became person under law and that will have big implications later on to the 20th century.
1: Yeah, that pretty much.
2: So I think the 14th Amendment is really important for what's going to come in the 20th century. And then, uh, in about the turn of the century, about 1904, 1905, we have a, a Russian-Japanese War, which was uh, eventually uh, concluded with a treaty, but mediated by uh, President uh, Theodore Roosevelt. So we're beginning to see U.S. coming to play in uh, war politics around the turn of the century. And the war also marked the first victory of an Asian country against any kind of Western power in modern times. So you see a big shift there as well. And we all know the First World War started and where it started.
1: <laughs> right, it started in, uh technically, I think it started in Sarajevo, right?
2: Yep, exactly. Well that was like the that was like the official start but war was gonna be there even without that. Mm-hmm. There was so much going on already between different stations the nations sure they just needed something, some excuse to start the war. Well actually at the same time that the World War One started, uh one of my uh, favorite writers or American historian. Uh, he was born in Atlanta. The Borstein, I don't know if you heard about him.
1: Borstein? Um, can't say that I have right off, but...
2: He was one of the... one of the bigger American historians, conservative historians, but he was born in Atlanta in uh, 1914. He got a couple of nice books. He won a Pulitzer Prize, award on uh, many topics and war history. So your your listeners can uh look him up, Daniel Doseborstein. Borstein, it's really good good writer. Okay. Which would ex- it will help people to understand different uh different perspectives and about how society works and stuff like that. He was the first one, you know, I think 70s or 60s. He has a book to uh, explain the fake news and stuff like that, informational wars. He had a famous definition of celebrity and saying that a celebrity is a person who is known for his (laughs) well-knownness. So he had a lot of good points in his writings. But he was conservative in politics and his approach to culture. So he was involved with in what was going to happen later on in American life and primarily advertising and you know, what advertising brought to American life and economy. And of course, around right in the middle of World War One, we have the uh, October Revolution. Big, big uh, revolution. In Russia, which brought uh, communism to the world. Yeah. Which was sometimes referred as the Russian civil war as well. A lot of people were killed because you had the uh, monarchist, and yet a communist. And they all wanted to defend their own way of uh, organized organized labor, organized politics, organizing everything. Yeah. But right after World War One? we saw the, there was Treaty of Versailles, because French was still big in politics back then, so they had a main um, treaty conducted in Paris, outside of Paris. But you see, big dissolution of Russian, German, Ottoman empires, Austro-Hungarian Empire was dissolved after that. But then you have like Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia created right after World War One.
1: Okay, so, so it's your contention then, if I can sort of just, it's your contention that all of this sort of led up to the, the problems in Yugoslavia, the problems in the former Yugoslavia today are basically a product of the history.
2: Well, you yeah, have like today and a world, world, in my opinion, the world is a mess as well, a lot of unresolved Problems, problems to be solved.
1: Yeah, I think we could both agree on that. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think we could both agree on that. We just give it a little bit of context when we talk about the, what was happening, how things are created, how you can have some country and now you don't have that country anymore, then we can reappear again and disappear again and stuff like that.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I imagine that would be fairly destabilizing for
2: people. Yeah, that's like, true. That's your true.
1: country would just disappear. <laughs>
2: Pretty much. That's why I tell people the country where I'm born at doesn't exist anymore, so I actually don't have a country. The country yeah. where I was born at, yeah. You know, it's seven different countries now. Mm-hmm. hmm But right after the, no right after, but after World War One, like let's say 1930s, you had big rise of Germany, who lost the World War One, and big rise of Japan, who invaded China. Ten years be- before World War Two, Japan actually invaded China, with the resources, coal, minerals. We all see China today, world superpower. But then in about, that was about 1930s, early 1930s, invasion of Manchuria, where Japanese killed thousands of Chinese people. So there there's always going to be tension between China and Japan in that part of the world. And then just before the World War II, one of the Yugoslavian kings was assassinated in, in France, And that also created a lot of problems before the World War II. Yugoslavia could not get ready for what would become the big war of World War II. Right. By 1934. But then right after that, one of my favorite politicians in the U.S., uh, Ron Paul, is born right before World War II, 1935. And this one being Ron Paul for all political and all economics, That's my go to guy.
1: <laughs> so so you've uh,
2: you know, I've talked
1: to uh immigrants um for my podcast. Yeah. Um immigrants to America and a lot of immigrants to this country, uh Tend to that I've spoken with at least, um, and also a lot of people from politically unstable regions tend to think less government is a good idea. I'm just I'm just making an observation. I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just
2: saying. Yeah, I can agree to that. You know, in my opinion today, and we'll get to that later on once we get to, like, more recent dates, currently, like, government is abusing their powers, so the bigger the government, bigger abuse of their power, so that's the idea.
1: Hmm.
2: Hmm. Okay. So, like, Ron um, Paul, because he don't like uh, military intervention, uh, he likes I think a lot of people can read about Ron Paul and his ideas and why the the country should be run. And but then right after Ron Paul was born, like in 1935, a couple of years later before World War II, I even heard about Marco Polo Bridge uh, incident in China. That was like.
1: After World War Two, you said a Marco Polo bridge incident?
2: No, it After... was actually before.
1: That was before World War Two. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I know about Marco Polo. And yeah, yeah. But there's a
2: Marco Polo bridge accident, accident which started World War Two as far as Asia is concerned when oh. Japan, when Japan uh, did a full-scale invasion of China. The reason I'm bringing these Japanese invasions is because... Uh, of the China influence in the world today. So you have a big Japan trying to get all those resources from China. So like a couple of years before that, you had Japan, the allied with Germany and they, they full scale, full scale invasion of China, which was still monarchy at the time. And then just before uh, World War Two let's say, 1939, we have a first splitting of uh, uranium atom in the United States, which was achieved uh, at a Colombian university.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, that kind of set the stage for the 20th century in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah.
2: Starting, you know, politically. Yeah, but then later on that year... Germany invades Poland, start starting the World War II officially for the Western world. Like I said, for Asia, World War II already started two years before. the were already full-scale war. And we all know World War II. You had Germany invade Soviet Union later on. They opened the East Front. Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. We all know that. But then in, in 1943, you have a Tehran Conference. Pretty much, you have these war leaders from Russia, U.S., and Britain, plans how to create a second front. And then in uh, 45, you have the Alta Agreement about post-war organization and establishing a post-war order in Germany. And that was the first time that uh, somebody mentioned use of atomic bomb and that was like earlier in the year on 45 but then later on the year US dropped uh, two bombs in Japan ending the Pacific war over there mm-hmm. but then right after that Soviet Union secretly turned uh, Manchuria over to Chinese because uh when Japanese invaded Manchuria, they were defeated by the Soviet Union eventually at the end of the war. But then, since Soviet were communists, they gave communist Chinese, that land. And, of course, when they start a revolution, that's what you get right now. For the last 50 years in China, you have communism. But they all started in Manchuria, one of the richest areas in, uh, in China, as far as the resources and everything. Okay. And then right after that, that's still uh nineteen forty six. That's still nineteen forty six, but after the war we have uh a Nuremberg trials, I'm sure you're familiar with that.
1: Yes. Yeah that's but the, it was yeah. also
2: yeah, but it was also uh second trials uh which we call like a doctor's trials. Pretty much for Nazi uh, human experiments, so there was okay. a separate trial just for that, and that's a big deal today as far as this vaccine deals and everything, which set standards because they were experimenting on human lives unwillingly. So that trials that sets the bar that you can't vaccinate people if they don't want to against their own will. So that was pretty much a consequence of those trials because of what Nazi did to humans' experiments. And it's a big bioethic problem today as well. But there's a really good book on there as well called Survivors of Nazi Human Experiments. Mm -hmm. So that brings a big issue. But after the war, as far as vaccination and experiments, and what they found is the if people or doctors can use them, because they have a lot of data, like the u s and Soviet Union they were fighting over uh, Nazi uh scientists, who's gonna get more of them because they have a lot of data, rocket wise as far as military medically, and stuff like that you all we all know about paper clips and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I
1: know about Paperclip, but uh, vaguely, Paperclip was uh, something to do with the U.S. rocket program. It was where they would import uh, Nazi scientists uh, for the for the rockets.
2: Yeah, pretty much. They 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 know a lot about, because they did a lot of studies, and they have rockets, they have missiles, airplanes, yeah. stuff like that, so they brought all those scientists to U to US and they were stamping going in the Soviet Union, they brought a lot of scientists over there as well because Germany wasn't no longer a country even today you have US troops over there, so right after World War Two, Cold War started, so there's always some kind of war going on. <laughs> yeah. So, but people can read about paperclip. It's pretty much interesting as far as yeah. what happened after the World War Two. But then right after the war, you have all these uh, labor, the economy was going up. Baby boomers' economy was growing, so you have like Taft Hartley Act for labor unions. You have rights to organize and stuff like that, right-to-form unions all over. Mm. But the US, U.S. still did not sign the convention as far as labor unions. Like only U.S., China, and Iran like one of the countries that didn't sign it. Yeah, I
1: found that out recently that the U.S. didn't sign that. And I found that interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah well... We have a lot of stuff going on with people. can You can't really know everything, so <laughs> that's the problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But then in the 1950s, we have all these uh, anti-communist groups that were founded by Congress and undercover agents.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then in the sixties you had I mean what was did your parents talk about what Yugoslavia was like in the sixties?
2: In the fifties or sixties? In
1: the nineteen
2: sixties. Well because my parents were born around that time so they didn't even talk they didn't talk about that that much. But I read a lot of documentaries and stuff. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of migrations, there wasn't a, a lot of food back then. but right after World War Two, Europe was destroyed. So you yeah, had a lot of famines. People were moving to areas where you have more agricultural land to grow corn, wheat, whatnot, so Part of my family moved from mountainous area to more flat areas where agriculture is big. So,
1: mm-hmm. And you think they did that to try and farm?
2: Oh, well, yeah. The, right after World War II, it was it was hard because everything was devastated. So you had economy, pretty much a small economy, so that stopped from zero. But yeah, on U.S. on the other hand in 60s, which was booming, it wasn't affected by war that much, but you had all these productions of military airplanes, tanks, whatever. So completely opposite of what you have in U.S. and what you have in Europe. And Yugoslavia as well as a part of the Europe. But after the World War II... Before World War II, we have a monarchy in Yugoslavia. After World War II, we have communism in Yugoslavia. But it was one of the only countries, communist countries, that was not part of the Eastern Bloc. They were kind of like semi-independent. And, of course, Churchill approved Yugoslavia to be a communist because all those monarchs, they went to London after the World War two started
1: okay, okay
2: but yeah, um, in the u s after let's say World War II, let let's say fifteen years, you have a like, president being assassinated the K. that was like nineteen sixty three so even though all this massive economic boom, baby boomers, you still have a political tension, which we still don't know the all details of that assassination. We were supposed to get uh, all inform- information released, but every president keeps blocking it, blocking it. Even Biden is blocking it, mm-hmm. the full information of the documents that they have. That's interesting. That's been bipartisan with the blocking. Yeah, a lot of stuff is done bipartisan. Yeah. And um, myself, I'm more like independent. I don't, I don't follow Republicans or Democrats. I don't pick sides. I have people that I like in both parties, and I have people that I don't like in both parties. So. Yeah.
1: All right. So let's let's keep talking about
2: the history, though. Um, well right after j f k assassination, we get a uh, vietnam war Gulf and tonkin incident, and i uh saw one of the documentaries about uh McNamara, he was Secretary of defense at the time, which purposely doctrinated uh data and documents saying that U.S. should go into the war, even though it was not supposed to go to war. But for some reason, he made the false claims, and the U.S. went to the Vietnam. And then after the war, McNamara, he was a World Bank Group president for, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years. It was an interesting documentary that I saw. So even during the great prosperity of US you have all these cohort operations. Like in the mid sixties you have the CIA, they were they were funding the groups for Congress for cultural freedom to infiltrate the artist movements and stuff like that. There there's a really good book on that one, uh it's got like a Who Paid the Piper from nineteen ninety nine. It's a really good book about all those operations and what they were using money for and stuff that's going behind the scenes that we don't want to talk about and we, we really don't know much about it unless a whistleblower comes up from inside and tells us about it. And then in, let's say, 1967 we have a Freedom of Information Act Sixty-nine, we have uh, significant civil rights movements, minority rights, woman rights, environment like or or, or EPA it was all founded like in late sixties. I'm just Paul-
1: curious. I'm I'm just curious, Alex. Um, you seem to know a lot about American history, which I apologize for. Yep. They obviously. I mean, did they teach you this in in? at home in Europe, or or did you learn it in America?
2: I learned mostly here. At this point, I lived most of my life in America rather than Europe. <laughs> so, there's a lot of stuff to be learned in American okay. history as well. But everything in American history affects the rest of the world for the last hundred years, so. Well, that's, I'm, I'm, yeah. Everything is kind of interconnected, so.
1: I'm amazed, like, the people, I'm amazed, like, the folks I talk to overseas, how many of them know a lot about American politics and history.
2: Like, a lot. I, one reason is that U.S. is, like, the most powerful country in the world right now, so it's most influential country in the world, so... Everybody's going to be attracted to it, to understand it, see what it is. Most studies are being done, what's going on in the United States. And U.S. has one of the best internal systems as far as organized economy and stuff like that, laws. But external politics is a little bit different topic. How U.S. approaches different types of conflicts and diplomacy and stuff like that. Yeah. But around this time that we're right now, like 1960, late 1960s, beginning of 70s, right after, like, uh, you have a Federal Election Campaign Act, which was regulating uh, campaign fundraising and spending Right after, like, 1971, you have a uh, big business offensive backlash. Like, in, in the 1960s, you have this big economy move, booming, all these, like I said, OSHA was created, EPA was created, Apollo program. Beginning of the 70s, you have opposite. You have gold standard, the gold standard was dropped. You have, like, the... Uh, for lateral commission you have uh, right after I think uh, when Carter won the election who was his uh, vice president? Mondale Rockefeller, Rockefeller, right
1: Walter Mondale was
2: Carter's vice president yeah (laughs) Well, he had a lot of Rockefellers and Trilateral Commission, um cabinet members. Kissinger, you had also the, uh, um, Brzezinski, if I say that correctly. Yeah, my bad. Under Ford, it was a Rockefeller. And it was after Nixon, but, uh, yeah. During the Ford Rockefeller, you had a lot of these, whatever it was done in the 60s, now they're undoing in the 70s because businesses, businesses were getting worried that they're losing too much power to the people with all these civil movement rights, democratization, minority rights and stuff. <clears throat> so like I said, they dropped the gold standard. You have a like big shift in economy to increase the role of financial institutions like banks, insurance, investments. And then you have something new starting in the 70s which was offshoring of production. And that's why you see China today. It's direct result of that. Companies got greedy in the US, so they went to China, and now you have China as a leading economy right now. But they all started in the 70s.
1: Yeah.
2: that thought which, which was interesting, which not many people talk about this, how China came to power and what happened in the 80s, 90s, primarily 70s. But under Nixon, they started dealing more with China. Even though China was a cool communist country, it was okay to do business with them. Money has no boundaries. Only people have boundaries. You're pretty much, if you're like a citizen, you're stuck to a certain country. But money-wise, money can cross the border without any problems.
1: Let me ask you a question because I've been thinking about this. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot because of my podcast. Yep. What do you think uh, a world where the borders were much more porous and much more flexible would look like?
2: Can you say that again, please? Yeah, yeah.
1: What do you think a world where the borders were much more porous and much more flexible would look like? Mm.
2: I cannot say this is like a, it'll be better or it'll be worse. It could be both. I really don't have specific opinion about it. It would definitely be better if people can move freely. If money can move freely, people should be able to move freely as well. But there, there has to be some kind of border as well. Because you have to organize in certain ways, like if you don't have the countries, then you wouldn't be organized as, as such. There has to be some kind of organizational level. Like same, starting from your house, even in your house you have different rooms and you have the doors that come in and out. So pretty much imagine your house without the walls. It could be good, it could be bad, it depends on a situation. Yes. Yeah, I, I as long as there's doors that are easily open and closed, I don't see the issue there. Okay. Okay. Um then like I said also like in seventies you have all this um, deregulation you have this lobbyist group starting to take place. All this lobbying just started back in seventies and which resulted like biggest concentration of wealth and power and since then you have this big divide in in the economy as far as rich to poor ratio was the gap between them. They all started back in seventies. And there was actually a big, uh, big U.S. Supreme Court case in the middle of 70s, uh, Buckley versus Valeo, I think it was, where money was a form of speech, and rather free speech for corporations. They were, they were pretty much, as far as elections, they can put as much money as they want into elections. So pretty much, you had this vicious cycle of money buys politicians, and politicians return a favor to the money, or whoever is the owner of the money, so... So there's... yeah.
1: So do you think... as well. So do you think that'll continue in this country, or do you think that'll...
2: Well, from what I'm seeing right now, there's too much concentration of wealth and power. The... Unless they're willing to give that power, you won't be able to. Unless you force it physically or I don't know, okay, for that, they won't give up their rights. All the taxes and everything else is, everything is created to benefit the richer. So, I listened to one of your other podcasts about, um, uh, more social. And I do think that I grew up in socialism, so I got a little bit of taste of it, and I don't mind a little bit more socialism, because even though if you like or don't like socialism, we do have socialism in the US in form of uh, social security, for me that's a social security program, so that's a social program, and you also had like a big bailout in 2009, after the economy crash, you get a big bailout for corporations, which was also a social program. but every time the, every time there's a need for citizens to get some kind of social benefit, it's not bad. We can't have that type of socialism. only socialism if it benefits the corporations and the wealthy, then it's okay, <laughs> so in that sense, we need to have a little bit more balance, a little bit more socialism for regular citizens. It wouldn't be bad. Okay. But then, but then at the end of it, all of this stuff going on in the 70s, you got like a big oil crisis at the end of the 70s. And then you have Soviets. They invade Afghanistan. And that's going to be important later on because we had, uh, CIA operations with Mujahideens over there fighting together with Afghanis fighting against Soviets. Well, eventually that war ended. It was about 10 year war. So at the end of 80s, you have all these Mujahideens. Mujahideens are pretty much the Islamic warriors. And then, uh, at the end of the war, CIA sent all of the Mujahideen veterans, including uh, Osama bin Laden, to Bosnia. So it created a big conflict over there when the war started.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember that. I actually remember that.
2: Because not many many people can link those two together, like Afghanistan and Bosnia. But right after the Afghanistan war ended, the Bosnian war started. But a link there is like the Mujahideen and Osama bin Laden.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I remember reading about that in the newspaper, even, like, you know, when when I was in high school.
2: Well, when you had, you had a policy of the aiding Mujahideens in their war against Soviets, it was originally proposed by uh, Brzezinski and implemented by U.S. intelligence services. So you have all these people that have connections to U.S. and CIA already. When you analyze terrorism, you will see that after the Soviet-Afghanistan Af- war and uh, after collapse of Soviet Union, United States slash CIA they sent all of those veterans to Bosnia but then there are also documents that show Osama bin Laden using uh British cell phones during the communications with US and everybody else in between their networks. And uh big thing was before Bosnian war, you have all these terrorist groups like like in Palestine, Yafatar and Hamas, it was all tied for like one nation and one problem. And Al-Qaeda al- was like a small group in shadow of like a Taliban movement. And uh, you had the main guy back then was like uh, some kind of Omar Abdel Rahman who actually came to the U.S. Even though he was, this is interesting, even though he was on... Uh, <clears throat> U.S. State Department terrorist watch list. He was still able to come into U.S. because of his ties with CIA. CIA was 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 approved his visas, but then in '93 he did that World Trade Center bombing, like the first World Trade Center bombing that we had. So he had all these terrorists coming from Afghanistan, then who worked together in Afghanistan against Soviets. So people don't usually link those two together. But after the during and after the Bolton Award you have big big uh, how would I say big improvement or big Al-Qaeda became like the first uh, multinational terrorist organization who can economically self-sustain. They create like a hundreds of the cells around the world, and then uh, they have a specific political goals and targets, military training, which all came during and after the bombing war. And let's be clear, they don't represent any real Islam, or they don't have a concept of good neighbor living alongside the Jewish people or Christian people because their primary goal was to deepen, divide and radicalize Muslims. So. so pretty much terrorism is not an accident, it's it's a system and it's uh, terrorism or is organized international criminal acts. But like I said, even though if you have uh, somebody on the US terrorist watch list, they're still able to come into the U.S. because of the ties with the CIA. So there's a lot of things that we don't know about these terrorist attacks, and who are they really working for, and stuff like that. Hmm.
1: It's really interesting because, I mean, I agree with you. A lot of, especially if you look at from like the latter part of the 19th century, moving
2: forward, a lot of this is really connected. Yeah, that's what brings bring these, yeah, specific dates and stuff because they're all interconnected and gives listeners a little better understanding of yeah. what's going on or what they can go back and research a little bit more. Because we're today we have so much information and you get, like, you're bombarded with information, so you cannot decipher what you should be focused on, what you should filter. <laughs> you too we, much of We it.
1: almost have the opposite problem. Exactly. We almost have, like, there's too much information, and yeah. there's not enough of a... Like, there's not an... I don't know how to say it exactly, but there's not enough... We're not teaching enough, or, okay, like, I learned how to contextualize information in school. But what I'm afraid of now is, like, nowadays, uh that's being deemphasized in terms of, in favor of, let's teach people specific things so they can go out and earn a living, which is totally fine. Yeah. From a from a human perspective. But y- you still want people to be contextualized.
2: Well, you make one-sided people, kind of. Yeah. they are only interested in one side. They don't want to hear the other side. They're only interested in certain things. They don't want to think, look at a thing as a whole. There's so many aspects of life, so.
1: Right. And also, like, I think... I think there's a lot of America. It's like there are a lot of people in America who believe that they don't have to learn history. Yeah, there's they're a forced,
2: lot of they're people. Forced they're they're forced to learn it, so They're not interested. I was the same when I was a kid. I I didn't want to. I didn't really care about history that much. I just wanted to get B or A and go continue with sports or whatever.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I was lucky. I had um, my uncle was um, in World War II. Well, I had a lot of uncles in World War II, but I had one in particular who really talked to me about what he did. And it was just really interesting, for lack of a better way to say it. It was just really um, not at all the kind of stuff you read about in school
2: yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you get like personal insight of what happens so it's much more you're much more emotionally involved in that yeah
1: yeah exactly that's exactly right
2: you yeah, have a lot of things today people enjoy their comfort and as soon as they're not in their comfort they don't want to do certain things they feel forced to do something and they get rejection. If they don't want to do it. So that's a problem as well. Well, if you yeah. Have, if you have too many other options that you can do. Why would I be learning about history?
1: <laughs> well, and I mean, I, I mean, I, I totally get the whole point of like you need to train somebody ways to earn a living. Like I completely understand that. But at yeah. the same okay. time. It's really important to understand that like our whole like we're living in a moment which is connected to other moments which is connected to other people.
2: Yeah.
1: You know. Well, if you know a little bit about history.
2: Come. You gotta understand what's gonna happen and what can happen or why certain things and or some, some things that are presented to you might not be the way it's presented. To
1: some other people.
2: There's always certain Agenda being pushed for somebody or against somebody,
1: mhm exactly
2: exactly so in nineteen nineties you have since the u s was the only one major power left, they get to do whatever they want, so they abuse abuse their power in nineties, like I said, you had all these war and terror. That was going to happen later on after uh, 9-11, what happened there, you had a war on terror, but then you also have the uh, Patriot Act. I'm sure you're familiar with the Patriot Act, which is still current today, I think. And I think like that Ron Paul was only one of the two Republicans who were against it because he thought it was going to be major, uh, major abuse of power by the government, which it came to be true later on, with all see these investigations and stuff. Mm-hmm. In 2003, we had, like, a weapons of mass destructions. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with that. There was another... Same thing will in Vietnam. Somebody was pushing for U.S. to go to war with Vietnam for no reason, in my opinion. Same thing was happening in Iraq. I was already in the U.S. when that was going on. I was, and personally, I was also opposed to the U.S. going to Iraq because I didn't want my tax money to be spent over there for no reason. And there's a lot of documents proving and showing a lot of views of U.S. taxpayer dollar over there. But then in about 2006, uh Assange creates the WikiLeaks which we get all this info right now Chelsea Manning I'm sure you've heard of him he had leaks that included like the US Army airstrike that killed a couple of uh, Reuters I think Reuters uh, news guys, agency guys so that was a big thing that came in two thousand ten and that's why he had a Chelsea Manning trial. But he got pardoned by Obama at the end. And then we two thousand eight there was a big collapse of the economy and we all know like why that. Massive deregulation that happened. All these companies they were abusing their power, they were just looking at the profits. So he had to end at some point and 2008 was a big part of that.
1: Yeah. Well, this little walk through history has been, with you, has been interesting. Um, and it's interesting to me because, like, you're one person. <laughs> and, well, like, it's fascinating to me because, like, later, like, Later, so somebody might listen to this and think, "What would a reasonably intelligent person who was well read and whatever um what would what would their take on history be and here it is Here's a
2: take on history well, like to, I would like the people to go and listen to it and inspire people, get a little bit of information, but also inspire people to research on their own and see what's interesting, how things are related, and stuff like that. Yeah. You always get inspiration from something, so
1: And I I think that's important I think this podcast episode right here is is pretty important just because like you're you're you know you're I'll call you well considered. You're you're very well thought in history. And I think it's important that people later understand that this is running around as a person. Exactly that you see the world that has connected.
2: Yeah. This is actually my first time on podcasts. So I'm not really I'm not a good speaker, I'm not a really good translator of information. This is only like maybe five percent of what I know, but to translate it to you it's difficult for me.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I wanna have you back eventually someday. Um so let's let's think about um so I had, I don't know if you heard it, but I had a young man on my show from Bosnia. Yep, yep. And I don't know if you heard
2: it. Yeah, I think I listened to it. But he said, he laid out,
1: like, you had the, like, he had the pro-Russian people, and you had the pro, um, like, the pro-nationalist people and the pro-Russian people. Um, yeah.
2: So, it? beginning of that, uh... I can uh, give you a little bit of information about that as well. Uh, When I said when there was an October Revolution, you had a big civil war in uh, Russia, and what happened, you had all these communists, which eventually won, and you had these monarchists, which were for the kings, which eventually lost. Well, most of those monarchists, they had to go somewhere. Some of them came to San Francisco, Japan, but most of them went to Yugoslavia, actually. And they were very educated doctors, a lot of, a lot of educated people, and they brought, they opened like universities in Yugoslavia, they opened up a lot of cultural centers, ballet is big, big in Russia, so they brought a lot of cultural stuff to Yugoslavia pre between World War One and World War Two, so there was a lot of good inf- Russian influence, the old Russian influence on Yugoslavia because of that. Now, like I said, before World War Two, Yugoslavia was also a monarchy, and Yugoslavia did not have good relations with Soviet Russia. they were actually pretty bad relations. So because of that, after World War Two was communism, so you have all these Russian people and monarchists and you have this communist non Yugoslavia so even today you have this split fifty fifty people. Some people like Russia because of communism, some people like Russia because of monarchy. Some people don't like any of that. They just like Western democracy. So there's a lot of things when you look into like why people like this or that. So I hope that explains it a little bit better.
1: Do you think there's a type of person that finds democracy attractive versus monarchy versus communism?
2: Can you say that again, please?
1: Yeah. Do you think there's a type of person who finds democracy attractive versus a type of person who
2: finds monarchy attractive
1: versus a type of person who finds communi- communism attractive?
2: well in my opinion personally i don't like communism i'm more for democracy but i personally wouldn't mind monarchy either so it's all they all have goods and bads but to me in my opinion communism is bad for some other reasons not because their life is because of how they come to power pretty much when you get communism you just had your last elections, So you can't have another. If you decide so, you can't come out of communism. You can't water it out. It has to be physical. So that's the problem with communism. Other than that, certain parts of communism work. I mean, we see China today. I'm not advocating for it, but we see China, which is communist, but they have like one of the biggest economies in the world right now. But of course, their level of... uh, Development is very low compared to the U.S., but it still functions. But, but I can see a person, you have persons, even today, still for monarchy, still for democracy, even for communism. So. Then also you have socialism as well, which is not the same as communism. A lot of, a lot of parties uh, in Europe there have a social pretext, like social democracy party, so you have a lot of that in Europe.
1: Yeah, you do, you have the, uh, I'm trying to think, like you have the, uh, I guess not the Labour Party, but the um, what do they call it in Britain? Um, well, I think they're a Party. There is a Labour Party in Britain, but that's not the more socialist party, that's, uh, I I can't remember the name of it right now, but like in uh, Germany, I think you have, I think they
2: call it uh, yeah, the Democratic Social Party, I think. Yeah, the
1: literally like the Social Democratic, right, right, yeah.
2: So yes. in the yeah. U.S. we only have a two-party system in Europe in every country. It's like at least five, ten different parties. So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you there's a, It's a small movement, but it's beginning to create here for a third party in the United States. So we'll see when is that going to happen, if it does happen.
1: Well, you know you and I both have lived through a lot of changes over the last couple of little
2: while, so yeah, yeah. who knows um, hmm. but then, uh, to continue with our whole timeline, whatever, right after the uh economy crash, we also have another big supreme Court case on uh Federal Election Commission, which was Citizen United versus FEC, and pretty much said that right of uh, free speech of corporations, mainly like to spend as much money they wanted, and that it can't be curtailed. So there was another case there that even further allowed these corporations to file money through elections, which pretty much allowed pretty much gave them the right because they see money as a free speech, they can spend as much money as they want on any election without any consequences. So today we see all these bills or whatever. We just had uh, Biden's bill did not pass because of one guy, which I don't think it's a coincidence in my opinion. There is always that one guy that doesn't want to get it passed and it doesn't get passed when it's an in interest of regular citizens, so, there's always that. But then, when Obama came to power, in 2010, 2008, but 2010, there was a lot of changes, internationally, but people don't know where, people are, in US, they were like, some were happy, some were less happy, that Obama came, all these, civil movements, stuff like that, but, we yeah, have big, uh, Arab Spring in 2011, which decimated the Middle East wars in Syria, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, even more than that. And then you had the uh, big joint uh, operations with U.S. and uh, Israel that was targeting uh, Iran's uh, nuclear uh, program, and that was a big, big uh, mess up there because. Even with unforeseen uh, consequences, pretty much uh, infected uh, a lot of industrial computers. And even like some safety guys in U.S., they were like going to Congress that they were being attacked. But they didn't know they were attacked by the, the secret program that Israel and U.S. created, which was named Stuxnet. People can read about that. And it was actually, we talked about that because of the uh, General, uh, I think, James Cartwright. He was actually, he went under the trial, but that uh, Obama didn't pursue because they have disclosed a bunch of information, but one of the generals leaked the information to the New York Post about this uh, uh, malware that they created. And there's also a big documentary on, uh, I think, Zero Days it's called. People can look at it. It's really interesting to see, like the what what is at stake and how governments balance their programs and stuff.
1: Yeah, Stuxnet. Um, Stuxnet is really interesting because it it's one of those things that affects like just it went beyond what the
2: what the people who made it thought it would. Exactly, yes. But even after that, then he had uh, Snowden, which provided even more evidence of mass illegal invasion of privacy by NSA when he leaked, like, 10,000 documents to Guardian. So he went even further and showed, like, there was this program called PRISM, Tempora, X-Case Core, all these programs, to massively surveil everything done on the Internet, pretty much. Which brings us to today's world. Everything is digital, so everything you do is going to leave a digital footprint. So you can always backtrack something, what you said or what you did or what you clicked on. Everything can be backtracked. Now, it could be good, it could be bad. We really don't know.
1: Well, I I think it'll be a little... I think, like with everything else, I think it'll be both. I think it'll be good and bad. Right? It'll be good because of accountability. It'll be bad because, you know, who who are the people tracking you, basically.
2: Yes. But it's just that we don't know all those programs showed us that... uh, they we be created uh, illegally. So, under the Constitution, they're not supposed to do that, but they're doing it. Even the FISA courts, they get abused, even by those top FBI agents, he gets abused, which was supposed to set the standards for following the policy. But even there, there's some kind of different interest. So, it doesn't matter what the law says, they'll go, whatever their interests are. I don't know if you followed any of the Russia gate for the elections and stuff like that. It was a major cover-up as well. We still don't know everything about it. So a lot of information that's presented to us, we might know maybe 15%, but there's like 80% that we really don't know the true nature because of just how sensitive information is.
1: You know, it's fascinating. I had a, a podcast guest. He goes by Parker James. Yeah. And he had stayed in Central America or South America. Um, he worked there. And he talked about how the U.S. was having, uh, essentially what they said was the U.S. was having uh wars in South America and but the American citizens didn't know about it
2: exactly that's what's happening every time I mean yeah. you have war now in Yemen but nobody's you don't see Yemen in news but like I said back in the 70s you have all these when Kissinger was in power and Brzezinski was in power national advisors they would go to Panama You know about Panama a little bit Argentinian wars, There's a lot of different wars over there. Colombia,
1: yeah,
2: because the U.S. is a global power, so they want to be everywhere.
1: Right. Um. So, Alex, um. So, what do you think? Um, the future is with, with COVID and all that. With um, Not with COVID, but with, I guess let me rephrase that. How do you think our, what do you think the country is going to be like, say, in five or ten years?
2: Five or ten years is going to be hard to predict, but it's going to be much more dependent on technology, I can tell you that. That's where it's moving forward, you get this 5G technology, which opens up a whole new horizon of job-related stuff that you can do. You can work from home now. Mm. But as far as, like, COVID stuff, it's super unpredictable because we don't know the details. You can end tomorrow. It can be going off the next two or three years because it's not a regular pandemic cycle that we've been seeing in the past, so... Uh only percent I can say that they're gonna be very technology dependent.
1: I think you're right. I think and I think that's gonna play in society in ways we haven't even thought of. Yes. I think you know, like I really think you're gonna see not just a a knowledge gap in terms of towns or neighborhoods, but even like house to house.
2: Yes, and it just yeah. Home, what level of acceptance do you want to bring this technology in your life? Now you have these uh, smart uh, thermostats. You have all these smart appliances. So right. more and more, more. You don't even realize, but technology is everywhere around you. More and more.
1: Mm.
2: Just like 15 years ago we use like a regular small cell phone. Now it's like a computer in your pocket or more like a supercomputer. Like your cell phone is more powerful than what computer brought Apollo to the moon. If you look at it in that perspective, like the small device in your pocket.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. You're absolutely right. The, it's just, It amazes me, like, the phone I've got that I'm talking to you on right now is more powerful than the phone I had five years ago?
2: Oh, yeah. much more powerful. But the only thing that's a drawback to that is is uh, when, when kids are growing up, they don't really want to read stuff now. They're more because I have like a small kid right now. And in kids' development, it's really bad if they have a visuals all the time, which overloads their brain, which is not good. They're supposed to be reading as much as possible. So a lot of these private schools, expensive schools, they don't have any technology there. Because for brain development, you need to have uh, books and coloring books. Because not to overstimulate the... So, young adult brains
1: that's interesting um, does that even hold true with like candles and stuff or
2: candles is ok it's more black and white it's not visual primarily okay. visual I mean like a video moving moving motion
1: alright
2: yes it, it's good it's ok for us but it's it's bad for uh, brain development like let's say you're three three to ten years old when your brain is developing if you have like if you watch YouTube every day your brain gets overloaded and it can't develop properly I wonder if that does that even
1: hold true for uh, adults I wonder because I I, you know I watch a lot of YouTube
2: (laughs) me too I watch it as well but it's good to read as well pretty much when you're watching something, visuals, your imagination stops working. You don't need to imagine anything. But for kids, it's very important mm-hmm. when they read, they need to be imagining things to work in their brain like that.
1: Yeah, I I, I would imagine. I
2: would absolutely imagine. Um... Even though like, when I was in, growing up in school, we couldn't use calculators. You have to calculate everything by yourself.
1: I remember that
2: it wasn't point to get the correct result. it was point to go through the process of using your brain to solve either correct or not correct answer but now you have all this supercomputer that does everything for you, brain activities less and less <laughs> you know what i mean
1: yeah i I know exactly what you mean, don't you remember like I mean, I remember like when I was in high school uh the the teacher would be all you' you're never gonna you're not gonna walk around with a calculator
2: like exactly yes, you yeah, get sent yeah. out of the room and they say your calculator
1: Here we are with a calculator i mean here i am talking to you on a calculator
2: right well, uh, I now mean, we have like tablets yeah. and computers everywhere, so I
1: mean right right exactly um. And you know, like like you're saying, I I have I mean I think on the one hand, I think technology is is great. But on the other hand it has um there's some very negative impacts depending on
2: uh how it's used and the way it's used. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, just saying have to be a limit to it. Everything is too much, even if you drink too much water, you're gonna get sick or drown. Yeah, yeah. So that's like a basic example I can give you. Too much of everything is not good. So that's why, like, when I look at these facts, social or political or whatever, I always try to balance things out. I don't want to get into one side too much or the other side too much. Both sides they have their own. Or in some cases, you have three sides, three different interest groups working against each other. They all have their own valid arguments, so just do that. I try to analyze things and approach things with open mind. Like I said, in my family I have Muslims, Orthodox, Christians, Catholics, Communists. So they all they have their own point of view.
1: Yeah, that's right, and I imagine somebody like you would have, I mean, from the place where you're from, like, that'd be more likely to happen.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. You know, it's like I'm talking to people. I love talking to just people instead of, like, experts or whatever, but just people and putting that
2: online Expert is very narrow mind. If you're expert in something, that means you just know that one thing. So, well, right, but also it's
1: like um, if you talk to just people, you, you get a real good sense of what society's like, right? Yeah, what yeah. our
2: society's really doing. Yeah, myself, <laughs> I, I like talking to people, but I like to take uh, talk to older people than me. like. I'll. I love listening to people that are older than me because I was no more. They can explain to me more what's going on and stuff.
1: Yeah.
2: But today you don't have a lot of listeners today. Everybody wants to present their opinion today, which mm-hmm. to me, is the problem. It's a one-way conversation.
1: Mhm. And I think we're. I think we're. um Increasingly, I think we're we're looking for that a one-way conversation, and I think that's bad.
2: Yeah, it's definitely bad. Well, we we live a very uh, fast-paced life, and that pace is growing every day. It's faster and faster, <laughs> and you have to find a way to slow it down if you can somehow, because you're just gonna burn yourself at the end.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah well um, did you have anything else you wanted to add to the what I'm sure will be a pretty good podcast
2: well there was always more things to talk about but we talked about a lot of things today but as, yeah. long as, as long as we need to think and create a like, better place to live and to go and be together, I think if we did that to inspire somebody, I'm, I'm pretty happy if we did that. If we inspire one person, we did our job.
1: Well, yeah. And I think the thing to remember is that like this is an educational thing. Like, you know, I mean, this one podcast you know, it's, but for me it's like all of my podcast episodes together paint the whole picture
2: yeah definitely yeah. Right. I just yeah. want to do a little, little history voyage since your history voyager podcast so it wouldn't be bad to go through like the facts I think, that I picked throughout the history to explain mine. what we're living in today and how nations interact with each other and how China-US is going to have their relations going forward so.
1: I think that's going to be the
2: name of the the episode of Voyage Through History. <laughs> I think that's going to be a the yeah, name yeah. of the episode. Um, yeah, primarily our life is going to depend on what China and U.S. decide was going to how they're going to improve or not improve their relations. Pretty much, because there's going to be two major powers in the next fifty years to come. Yeah, so uh, we're about China and U.S. more. I would imagine.
1: Okay, Alex. Um, as always, uh, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. Alex, if you'll just hang on with me on the line. Uh, thank you. All right.